1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In Washington, D.C. this morning, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Climate activists have had big oil companies in their sights for decades, and not without reason. But transitioning to greener energy depends on other firms that you've probably never heard of, and that really don't wanna stop pumping oil. And every year, for one weekend, the world's best barbecuers descend on Memphis to compete in the World Championship Barbecue Cooking Contest. We'll take you to this year's event to meet the happy sufferers of smoked swine fever. First up, though. This week, the sounds of war rang out in the Crimean Peninsula. Tourists at a Black Sea resort fled as explosions and a column of smoke appeared in the distance. A nearby Russian airfield was up in flames, but precisely what caused the destruction remains something of a mystery. Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, didn't claim responsibility for the blasts, but he had a message for the world. This war began in Crimea, he said, and must end in Crimea too.
2: I'm looking at these spectacular satellite images in front of me.
1: Shashank Joshi is the economist defense editor.
2: And what they show is a lot of wreckage, wreckage of what used to be Russian planes, destroyed right where they are in their little spots on the runway, burnt ground, craters. This is a scene of immense destruction. And where is it? This is... The Saki Air Base, it's in Russian-occupied Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, which is part of Ukraine, but occupied by Russia. And this is, or, or perhaps we should say it was, the 43rd Naval Attack Aviation Regiment of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. And from the pictures we see, from what we can see so far, that regiment seems to have lost about half of its aircraft, more than half of its Sukhoi 24s, nearly half of its Sukhoi 30s, and this seems to be a huge blow to the Russian air power in southern Ukraine. So what do we think happened? If you believe the Russians this was an accident, this was negligence, this was the spontaneous ignition of a bunch of aviation bombs that were left carelessly on the airbase, I think that's complete nonsense. This was almost certainly a Ukrainian strike, but there's a mystery as to what actually struck this base because This is over 225 kilometers behind the front lines of the Russia-Ukraine war. Ukraine isn't publicly known to have any weapons that can reach that far, so everyone is scratching their heads as to understand how did they do this. One possibility is that this was a special forces raid, which they have done in the past, but this was in broad daylight, and that would be a very bold move. Another possibility is this was a ballistic missile, perhaps a missile that the Ukrainians have been developing that we don't know about, but Again, this was daylight. We have videos of the explosion. There's no indication of anyone seeing a missile coming in. And so, John, I lean to the view that this was probably something that we would call loitering munitions, which are kind of drone type munitions, which would fly pretty low. They'd be fairly quiet. You might not spot them. But the honest answer is nobody knows for sure.
1: It seems relevant, doesn't it, that Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, recently said that the war began with Crimea and must end with it. Does that seem to you like an
2: oblique comment on what happened? Absolutely. The Ukrainians are not taking responsibility. In fact, one presidential advisor said that Kiev wasn't responsible. But American officials are saying the Ukrainians did it. And the Ukrainians are effectively conducting a kind of a wink and a nod. They're saying, we're not going to say we did it, but we pretty much did it. Everyone understands that we did it. And it's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, for the reason you mentioned, that this is Crimea. This is territory that was occupied and annexed by Russia back in 2014. And Ukraine is saying, we're not going to treat this like a safe haven. Absolutely, this is a legitimate target in our campaign. But it's also notable because there is a great deal of speculation underway right now that Ukraine is preparing for some kind of counteroffensive in the south, perhaps around Kherson province and, and Kherson City, which is occupied by Russia, perhaps somewhere else. Uh, and this really fits in with a series of attacks behind the front lines that almost you know amount to Ukraine saying, We're coming for you. It's a psychological blow to Russia, putting them off balance and saying, we are coming for this territory.
1: Do you see the liberation of Crimea as a as a near medium term possibility?
2: No. Ukraine's view and Zelensky's view has really ebbed and flowed on this. At times, he has said, we're going to take back everything we lost since February 24th, the beginning of this war. But everything else, including Crimea, we'll negotiate the return of that. And his officials have said sometimes they will take Crimea, sometimes they won't. In a way, this is a moot question. Right now, there are, I think, some serious doubts over whether Ukraine really has the military wherewithal, even to mount a serious assault on Kherson province. The problem is, Russia has been moving many of its forces away from the front that we've been talking about for so many months, the Donbass front in the east. And they have been putting those battalions into Kherson and the surrounding region. So now, They probably have 25, 30 battalions in Kherson. There were probably just 13, 14 a few weeks ago or or a month ago. So whether Ukraine can even conduct a serious counteroffensive in Kherson is open to questions. It is incredibly unlikely to me they are suddenly going to just sweep through all the way to Crimea, which is very well defended, has a lot of Russian forces there, and take it. I think this is a, a question that will, you know, a bridge that Ukraine can cross many months into the future.
1: And let's move away from Crimea for a minute. The fighting is most acute in the east, in the Donbass region. What are we seeing there?
2: Well, Russia hasn't completely given up its offensive in Donbass, but it is basically slowed to a halt. They are attacking a defensive line which runs from a place called Siversk all the way south to Bakhmut. And basically, it's a defensive belt that kind of runs north-south, shielding the really important cities of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. Russia wanted to take those, it is probing around those places, but it's not looking particularly successful. It's taken a few slivers of territory, but it is slowed down by the fact that its casualties have been absolutely immense. The Pentagon said they had taken 80,000 casualties in total in the course of this campaign, which is enormous. And it is complicated even more by the fact that they have been diverting forces from Isium, which is a place just to the north of the Donbass Front, and sending those battalions, as I said earlier, sending them to Kherson, to reinforce that area, to guard against a Ukrainian offensive. So what we're seeing, in other words, is that Russia is now being stretched thin across this enormous front that stretches a thousand kilometers from all the way, you know, around Kharkiv, all the way down to Kherson. It's having to make some difficult decisions about where it puts its forces. And in the process of doing that, it is opening up probably some vulnerable gaps in its line that Ukraine can exploit. And here is where the real significance of all of this talk of a counteroffensive may be. It may not be that Ukraine is actually going to roll into Kherson in the manner of kind of a big, you know, Gulf War or or, or D-Day type counteroffensive. It may be that it is forcing Russia to stretch its troops thin, stretch its lines thin. That is opening up gaps and Ukraine will try to ruthlessly exploit those as they open up.
1: The last time we spoke, Shashank, you said that there's likely to be a regrouping on both sides before the conflict moves into a new phase. Are we seeing this new phase now or is the, is, the, is the new phase what you just described in which Ukrainians try to exploit Russian overstretchedness?
2: I think we're in the new phase, John. I think very much so. We are looking at a period in which the Russians are are, are scrambling forces to the south. The Ukrainians are probing attacks around Kherson. They're using their American-supplied HIMARS launches to pound Russian ammunition depots, command posts. So this is the new phase of the campaign. Now, precisely what it looks like, precisely what that Ukrainian offensive will, will turn out to be, how successful they will be, all that is still very much a work in progress.
1: All right, Cheshank, that was fascinating as usual. Thanks so much for joining
2: us. Thank you, John.
1: For years, climate activists have pressured major oil companies to stop drilling for the black stuff. They've used protests BP and lawsuits to push their cause to get these private firms to move toward renewables and other green technologies. These well known brands are susceptible to consumer boycotts and so make attractive targets. But those climate
3: activists are missing a much bigger threat. National oil companies are the big state-controlled energy giants in places like uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and other parts of the world where hydrocarbon reserves are, by and large, controlled by the state. Vijay Vaitiswaran is our global energy and climate innovation editor. They have flown under the radar in a lot of the conversation about climate change because those companies like Exxon or BP or Shell that have petrol stations down the road from us get all the attention. But in fact, these national oil companies produce nearly three fifths of the world's crude oil and half its natural gas. And more importantly, going forward, as we think about the next few decades, when the world needs to unwind its addiction to oil, they sit on nearly two thirds of the proven reserves of petroleum. Saudi Aramco, the biggest of those big companies, has more than four decades worth of crude oil that it can produce at today's rates. And it's already among the world's biggest producers. And here's the kicker. This is about the world's cheapest and least carbon intensive as well to to lift out of the ground. Uh, We like to talk about big oil, but these national oil companies really should be called enormous oil.
1: And when we talk about big oil, we've seen companies like Shell and BP at least make public relations efforts to talk about how they're diversifying away from oil. Are these enormous oil companies also making those
3: sorts of efforts? By and large, no. On the contrary, I would say that uh, much of enormous oil is actually working in the other direction. That is, they're stepping up their production of oil and gas, in part because for a lot of them, because they see an end game for oil that doesn't include them, they worry about stranded assets. So they, they may even pump faster to try to monetize their assets before it's too late. And so how does that compare to commercial oil companies? So when we see how the big oil companies of the West, uh, the branded companies, ones that are susceptible to shareholder pressure, to ESG and uh, activist pressure and so on, what we find is that the Western publicly traded oil companies are devoting much more of their capital budget towards investments in renewable energy or hydrogen or other forms of uh, low-carbon investments, 15% on average across big oil, 20% if you look at the European oil majors, Whereas when you look at the state oil giants, the figure is maybe 5% across the world. So very little. And for many of them, and there are dozens and dozens of these national oil companies, the figure is close to zero. Who are the worst performers among them? The national oil companies that are worst positioned really are often the smaller and um, middling sized ones in Africa Asia, Latin America. They tend to be poorly run. They're often very politicized, uh, and they often have relatively small reserves or unattractive ones in the sense that their cost of lifting them out of the ground is quite high. The other aspect in which some of these are disadvantaged, if you look at Algeria, Venezuela, they often emit three to four times as much carbon in oil production as do those companies in the Persian Gulf and can flare seven to 10 times as much methane, which is a a powerful greenhouse gas, when they produce their oil as the gas giant called Qatar Energy, which is really one of the world's superpowers of natural gas.
1: Well, let's also look at the other end of the spectrum. Are there national oil companies that are doing well, that are
3: transitioning away from dirty energy? Here, there is good news. What you find is there's a couple of categories of uh, state-owned oil companies that are actually doubling down in a sense on uh, being energy companies, diversified companies of the future. Among them, Southeast Asia, interestingly, is uh, leading the way. We have Petronas in Malaysia, uh, PTT in Thailand. They have moved rapidly into renewable energy. Their countries have lots of endowments in solar and wind and so on. PTT has actually gotten into an alliance with Foxconn, which makes the iPhones that we're all familiar with for Apple uh, to make electric vehicles. EcoPetrol of Colombia is involved in wind and solar projects and recently acquired uh, an electricity transmission company. Even in China, which has a mixed record on climate change, you find that one of its oil giants, Sinuk, now wants its carbon emissions to peak by 2028 and is now vowing to make non-fossil energy over half of its domestic output by 2050, following on from a pledge that uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping made that China's emissions will start to fall before 2030.
1: So we've talked about a few companies that are performing unusually well, and we've talked about a few companies that are performing unusually badly. I assume, like any bell curve, the bulk sit in the middle. What about those companies? How does their performance stack up?
3: The ones that matter the most are the companies that are in the Middle East, they're sort of in the middle of those aggressive hedgers or diversifiers in Southeast Asia, and the ones doing really very little in Africa and other places. And they matter the most because they also have the biggest reserves in the world. Take uh, the United Arab Emirates. You find that Adnoc, which is its principal energy company, as well as uh, Mubadala, its giant sovereign wealth fund, and Mazdar, its huge vehicle for investing in renewable energy and smart cities, is betting big on hydrogen. Uh, one of the clean fuels of the future that many countries are hoping will help decarbonize heavy industry. They've signed deals with Germany and Japan to produce this kind of hydrogen and to ship it around the world. And that's perhaps the most advanced example in the world. But we also see even Saudi Aramco, they're going to keep pumping oil for years. But the resources from that, we're already seeing Saudi Arabia use those resources to create massive green ammonia, green hydrogen plants. They have uh, cutting-edge investments in carbon capture, uh, how to uh, deal with the carbon dioxide that comes from burning fossil fuels, as well as huge developments in carbon capture and sequestration, storing it underground, as it were. So what we're seeing is an interesting amount of innovation, even on that front, though they will still continue pumping for years. Now,
1: you say that they'll continue pumping for years, but I remember not too long ago, we heard a lot about having reached
3: peak oil. Did that turn out to be just a, a myth, a theory? Oh, that's an excellent question, because that's a battle in which The Economist engaged. (laughs) A couple of decades ago, during my last stint as energy correspondent for The Economist, it was very fashionable to talk about peak oil. And there were uh, numerous pundits, geologists, academic experts, investment bankers arguing that the world is about to run out of oil. And at that time, having spent a lot of time on the economics of oil, the history of commodities, of course, our newspaper was founded nearly 180 years ago, and has tracked the economics of commodity prices and cycles over that time, I grew convinced this was wrong. When you see the resource base in the ground, as well as the technologies that can turn what was called unconventional or inaccessible hydrocarbons into meaningful oil to the market, I argued on our pages then that, in fact, the world will be running into oil rather than running out of oil. And that has been the story of the last couple of decades. There's more hydrocarbon resources available to the market today than there was 20 years ago, despite the growth in the global economy. And to be honest, we're not going to run out of oil any time in the lifetimes of people listening to this. If anything, we will leave oil behind because we've found something better.
1: All right, VJ. thanks so much for your time today.
3: It's been great to be with you, John.
0: Selling a little or a lot?
2: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: What are you holding in your hand right now?
3: A pork shoulder. Let's see. Oh, wow. So it's very tender, and the sauce is really sweet. I don't know, it's interesting. I like it.
1: You can smell the contest long before you can see it. Acres of slowly smoking meat produce an incredible cholesterol haze over Memphis. I was there for the World Championship barbecue cooking contest, which was held in more or less full strength for the first time since 2019. Now in America, barbecue means cooking large cuts of meat for a long time over low fire as opposed to searing steak or burgers over gas or coals. That's grilling. Barbecue's origins are murky and, like much of American culture, probably stem from the mixing of Native, European, and African traditions. It was once found almost exclusively in the South, but barbecue has gone mainstream in America. Most big cities have at least one first-rate barbecue restaurant. The barbecue contest this year drew more than 200 teams to compete for a share of $145,000 in prize money. And while some of the teams are famous within the admittedly small world of competitive barbecue, and some are helmed by professional chefs, a lot of them are just hometown friends that like to hang out and cook, like this guy I met on the contest first day.
3: Uh, my name is Guy Proctor. We're standing at Tiger Lane in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm with the team Give the Devil His cue. We're a bunch of buddies from Arkansas. Uh, we've been doing this for about 11, 12 years now. We're entering uh, ribs for the category for tomorrow, so trying to be the number one
1: rib team. These teams come from all over the world. <laughs> I'm Alejandro Gutierrez. I uh, come from Monterrey, Mexico. We go from all over the country to compete. We represent in Mexico. is
2: Mexico's barbecue team. Uh, my name is Craig Whitson. I'm from Oklahoma originally. And I moved to Norway in 1980, so I've been there 41 years. And we're a group of people from Norway who've been coming here since 2007 and compete in New Memphis in May. Uh, yesterday we did all three sauces. We did hot wings and we did turkey smoke. Today we're doing beef, poultry, seafood, and exotic. And then tomorrow, our main entry is pork shoulder. Because we figure if we're going to travel this far, why not just go for it? So we started out with a lot more people.
1: These soldiers of smoke in Memphis, like Guy, Alejandro, and Craig, have spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of weekends honing their craft by cooking tons of pork, chicken, and beef. All for the chance to come to Memphis, which is generally agreed to be the world's toughest and most prestigious barbecue contest, where they'll lay out more money in order to place probably a distant 10th or 20th or 100th, as every team but a few will. But it's not just the competitors who flock here. The event also drew upwards of 30,000 spectators, and it's become a big deal for the city.
3: Yes, so I'm Lisa Anderson.
1: Are you a Memphis native?
3: I've lived here since like 2001. Crazy how big it actually is. I tend to forget that because I am just live in Memphis and it's just like, oh, barbecue fest, but now it's a really big deal for a lot of people. It's really cool.
1: But why do these teams come from all over the world to compete? And how has cooking meat over fire, maybe the oldest form of cooking on earth, become a middle-class spectator sport? Part of the reason, of course, is the end product. Smoke a rack of ribs or a whole hog perfectly and you get poetry in edible form. For competitors, there's also the challenge of getting things just right. The unhurried simplicity of barbecue belies a complex process that rewards attention and punishes overconfidence. No matter how many pork shoulders, briskets, or slabs of ribs a barbecuer has cooked, each time is a little different. A shoulder is fattier or leaner, the weather more or less windy, the fire raging or stubborn. Every change in circumstance requires an adjustment, which means a good barbecuer has to know when to stick to trusted methods and when to improvise. But probably the biggest draw is the camaraderie. You can't barbecue a single burger or chicken leg. Barbecuers have to cook for a crowd. In other words, it's a good way to make friends. Most of the teams in Memphis, and probably most competitive barbecue teams generally, have at their core a group of people who just like hanging out together. And that really explains much of the appeal of Memphis in May and of barbecue more widely. A Norwegian-born German from Munich named Hemming I spoke to said he'd been coming over for the contest since 2012. What draws you over here from, from Munich?
3: I think the camaraderie that's here, the friendship, of course, the weather, the blues music, and the food, the beer.
1: But as Hemming tells me, there's also the subtler meditative pleasure of barbecue. Long stretches of relaxed observation, interspersed with crucial moments of action.
3: For me, at home, it's maybe a little bit different. I like hanging out with the neighbors, but for sure, it's also the process of the barbecue. It's not always the eats that I have at the end. I just love taking the time off, that's a luxury. Fire up my pets and just, you know, contemplate life sometimes, you know. That
1: meditative aspect is a big part of what I love about it, too. But spending unhurried time with friends and family has always been my favorite part of barbecuing, and I suspect the same is true of almost everyone who puts fire to coals. My barbecuing came into its own when my wife and I moved to Atlanta in 2010 for my job. Our kids were just babies at the time. We were just starting our family and adjusting to life as parents, and like all new parents, we were perpetually exhausted but around the smoker I made some of my closest friends. It's easy to mock barbecue culture, at least the version on display in Memphis, for its excess and the seriousness with which it takes itself. Teams cook entire pork shoulders, enough meat to feed a dozen hungry people, just so a single judge can take a bite or two. The costs of competing far exceed what any but the top team could hope to take home in prize money, and people take their equipment very, very seriously.
0: I'm cooking a whole hog, on a vintage Traeger. It's a Com 200. It hasn't been made for about 15, 16 years. At home,
2: I barbecue on a uh, Beck-built smoker. It's a big box. It's about five feet tall by six feet wide. I fit about 30 shoulders on there at a time. Um, but I do everything. I do whole hogs, brisket. Ribs.
1: These days, I barbecue a lot less than I used to. Partly, that's because I don't live in the South anymore. Partly it's because I eat a lot less meat than I did. And of course, our kids are older and busier. And like a lot of other people, the pandemic shattered our social life, and we haven't quite managed to put the pieces back together. But I miss it. There are worse ways to spend a long summer night than joking and teasing and telling stories around a barbecue. I'm not sure there are many better ones. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. This week, the show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, with extra help this week from Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit Bankofamerica.com/slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, Copyright 2024.